Ozcert would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and any First Nations people listening today. We also want to acknowledge that these lands have always been places of learning and sharing of information, and that is the essence of this podcast. Welcome to the Ozcert Podcast. Share today, save tomorrow. I'm your host, Anthony Caruana, and for this episode, I'm joined by Peter Danieu, the founder of Secure Code Warrior. Peter and I chat about how important it is to consider security at every stage of the software development lifecycle and what developers can do to ensure the code they create is secure. Then it's over to my co-host, Beck, who chats with OzCert director David Stockdale and senior manager Mike Holm about OzCert's 30th birthday and a reflection on how the organization has evolved into the cybersecurity leader it is today. Today, I'm joined by Peter Danieu from Secure Code Warrior. Thanks for joining us today, Peter. Awesome. Thank you much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. So Secure Code Warrior says it on the box. You guys are about secure code and you work with developers around building secure code. Can you talk to us about like, how does the developer community come to thinking about security in their code and when they're working? Yeah, I think, I think what we're kind of seeing is that it's often been an afterthought from the developer, right? Like most developers that are coming into the workspace, they basically, they, they've been hired to build functional code that works and they want to get it out as soon, as quickly as possible to the end user. And what very often happens is that security kind of gets attached at the end or gets forgotten, or they don't even get the time from the management to say, hey, whatever we build needs to be secure from the start. And I think we've been in that scenario for, for 20 to 30 years. We need to change that. Is that there's two elements to that because one is obviously the the effort that the developer puts in and the environment in which they're allowed to work. So you know, if security is a priority from their manager, then it becomes a priority in their code. But there's also the tools they use to build code because they might have all the good intentions, but perhaps the development platform they use doesn't help them to create secure code. Is there a bit of a, a conflict between those things, or is it you know? Are the code development tools we have today good enough? And it's really just about bringing developers along that journey. Yeah, I I think there is no easy solution to that. Like one is, okay, management needs to prioritize that security is important. That's one, that's a given. But I think A, there is the, the knowledge and the skills that the developer actually has to understand, well, what is a good secure coding pattern and what's not. And often they don't get taught at universities on what the difference is, right? There, there is the, the languages and frameworks that the developers use. They don't restrict and say, you can only use these secure things, right? They basically give the developer freedom. And it's, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Developer, you can choose whatever function you want because you, it's flexibility, it's creativity, and you just build it while there could be frameworks that you kind of restrict very bad and say, you can only use this. But then again, that limits the creativity of the developer. So the development frameworks don't do that. And I think then there's a third element that is the tools that developers use, especially for security. They've been written by security people very often, like the scanners they're using, the pen testing tools they're using. Those are developed by security people and the, the and they've been, been using words and, and functionality for security people and they very often annoy the developer, right? Imagine, imagine you have a scanner and beeps every two seconds, you're doing something wrong and you need to fix this security thing. Like that's very annoying because you're kind of pulling the developer out of the context. And I think, so it's, it's probably an element of those three things, knowledge and experience, the right frameworks and, and making developer first security tools that I think we'll, we need to fix to make them care more about security. 
And I guess overarching those things all together is that the way we build software today is very different to the way we used to build software. You know, I'm old enough to remember waterfall development models where, you know, you'd spend weeks getting developed, you know, getting requirements and weeks and weeks and weeks doing development and then testing and all those things. And the whole process took forever. Now we expect to roll out code updates, you know, in some cases daily, but even for large applications, we're seeing fortnightly code updates. So we're developing our software and changing it so much faster. Does How do we keep up with that cadence and stay secure? So I think that's indeed one of the challenges that have kind of put the whole shift left movement and DevSecOps movement in the spotlight, because 20 years ago, we could develop software and you could bring in the security people at the back and have the scanning because it was time to do that, right? Now, when you need to release tomorrow at 8 a.m., there's no way on how you can ever get the bandwidth from security teams. They don't have the scale to do that. So we need to modify your tools to kind of be able to respond very quickly and do everything in line for the developer, with the developer while they're coding, rather than kind of waiting until an afterthought. There's a second element I would say that has changed in software development. It's not only moving from waterfall to agile and DevOps, but it's also, we used to write every single line of code ourselves, right? Now, the only piece of code we're writing is to have two open source components work with each other, to have two APIs work with each other. So it's like, Software developers, instead of kind of writing everything themselves, they become like these, these these orchestrators that are pulling and pushing all modules reusable together. And that's how they quickly develop an application. They have to rely upon software written by open source, by other people. And I think that creates an, an, an added complexity to the problem. And of course, you say rely on those tools. We could swap out the word rely with the word trust in all of that. I mean, that's part of, you know, some of the big vulnerabilities we've seen more recently, like Log4j, and before that, you know, we had Heartbleed. Those vulnerabilities in software that's been around for a very long time, we're trusting that software to just work a lot of the time, aren't we? Like, is, is that one of the problems is that because we've moved into this rapid development mode, is that we require a lot more trust and that's one element of it. And the second element, I guess, to that is that are developers unable, for whatever reason, I'm not saying necessarily a skill reason, but are they unable to actually assess the vulnerabilities they're potentially introducing by trusting all these other tools? Yes, I think that's a very good point. Like trust like this, we, we trust upon using a, a package and that package trusts on another package and that package trusts on another package. And we're like 20 packages deep and suddenly there's a vulnerability appearing in one of those that has this long effect across the whole chain, right? And it is we implicitly trust every single one of those packages, but there's actually no system. There's no system that can give me some guarantee that 20 layers deeper, I could trust that thing that has been built in a secure way because I don't know who built it, I don't know who has access to it, I don't know who controls it, what the quality is. And I think that that is something that we will have to solve if you want to keep working with all of those open source packages is that how do we build trust 20 layers down? And I think we, we started doing that by doing like the, the S-bombs and the software composition analysis tools and the scanners, right? That, that would scan that whole supply chain of, of packages. But the result of that is that we get hundreds of alerts, right? In packages that we don't even control. Mm. Like, I cannot go and fix a vulnerability 20 layers down in somebody else's package, although it's there. So I think that that's, uh, yeah, that makes things very difficult. 
Does does that mean it's impossible to have vulnerability-free software? It makes it very hard. Yes, yes, and I think, but I think there is, there, there is there is a lot of software security problems that we can avoid right here, right now. I feel like we we're not even applying the basic standards and hygiene things. Like you don't store plain text password in your source code. Like these are very obvious common things. Is that still common? But it still happens. It's these things still happen. Like misconfigurations, not restricting things enough, right? Those are very common software, like or or storing things in a bad way for encryption. Like like those are if you look at the OWASP top ten, right? Like injection attacks have been there for twenty years. Now it's being beaten by broken access control and crypto, but those are very common coding patterns that the average developer still apply in their code. So and to me it's let's get rid of those first, right? Before starting to wonder about like all the 20 packages and like that mm. that that specific log4j weakness that that is kind of very specific but has a wide impact let's try and apply the basic hygiene to the software that we're writing today and not having plain text passwords storing things in an encrypted way doing access control doing authorization like all of that those basic principles that we as security people have been known for 20 years but we're not the ones building the code it's a developer and we need to help that developer to understand that hey these are these are coding patterns you should avoid and these are coding patterns that are actually well designed so one of the things that we notice in our world today is that you know software is everywhere like people are buying cars that could only possibly run if the software runs effectively and efficiently you know and then once you're in that car you can only get from point a to b if the traffic light software works properly and then you could only possibly get petrol if the software, the petrol, or you know, go to a charging station and not have your car explode by being overcharged because of software running inside that coding state, inside that charging station. You know, software is everywhere. And I can't remember who it was. It was I got a feeling it was Mark Andreessen or someone yes. like that who said software is eating the world. But it's not eating the world. It is the world. <laughs> you know, it's overtaken things. You know, with software being everywhere, how vulnerable do you think we are as a society to bad software yeah it, it's kind of it's one of the main reasons why i started the company like secure code warrior because i used to sit on the other side like i used to sit on the offensive side where i was trying to find loopholes in systems and break them and then i started realizing that well like we we are really good into finding problems and breaking them but we have to actually help the builders the builders of that software we need to basically help them because they are they're building software for the cars, the space stations, the critical infrastructure of today, right? So we need to help those people to kind of become better. And like I always tell this story to kind of make an, an interesting comparison. Like if you look at software engineering as a profession, it is 50 years old, 60 years old, very young profession, right? Hmm. If you look at civil engineering as a profession, right? We started building bridges 2000 years ago in the Romans and the Greeks. Now, I'm pretty sure back then when the first bridges and buildings were being put down, they collapsed on humans and, and they died. And then there was this disastrous consequences of building a bad bridge that's not secure and not safe. Today, when a civil engineer graduates from university, right, there is no way on how they will ever be allowed to build critical infrastructure like a bridge if they don't know how to check all of those things. Now, software engineering is not 2,000 years old, it's 50 years old. And I think we're still in that Greek-Roman time, right, where it is about building things very fast to get the functionality out and I think the consequences of that is that we're going to see not only breaches, data breaches in enterprises 
or basically governments getting compromised. But I think we will see impacts on humans and individuals and people at home because of bad software that is now running in their homes. I think there was this case in Switzerland where door locks of a hotel were completely running on software and somebody had disabled all the door locks and nobody could leave their hotel room anymore. Like that starts to impact human and that's 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 the danger here. So, and that's interesting because when you talk about those big impact events that happened, you know, thousands of years ago with engineering projects, and now we translate that to today's world where software is everywhere, but we haven't achieved that same level of, I guess, standards maturity. What's it going to take for the software engineer? Do we actually need, do we need a bridge collapse? The, you know, the equivalent of a bridge collapse in the software world for software developers to wake up? Or have we already had so many bridge collapses, but because it's not tangible, software is intangible. Because it's not tangible, are people kind of like not worrying about it as much? I think we have bridges collapsing us all around us in the enterprise world. Like you open up the newspaper, you see a data breach every single day. And like I started to become insensitive about those things. Like, oh, another one. Okay, let's move on. Right. Mm-hmm. What we haven't seen is, is a software security thing that has an impact on normal humans like me and me, like the common people on the ground. Like I don't think we've seen a, a massive scale impact from a software problem on a country or on a society. Yes, there's this cyber war things, but it's still a bit far off of, 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 mm. of the bed show for humans. So I think it, it will probably require a, an incident on, on, on the common people to really start putting quality labels on software. Just like, like this is probably a really bad example, but when in the early 1900s, we started building children toys, right? They were not safe. They were probably pieces that were too small or chemicals that shouldn't be used. And there were disastrous consequences of that for young children to be able to play with those things, right? Now, I think that almost doesn't happen anymore. Why? Because there's a quality system there. There's the CE label. There's all these tests that vendors need to go through to demonstrate, hey, we are able to give our or things that we produce to, 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 to children children's hands. Today, that doesn't exist from a software perspective. Mm. Vendors that are building software or IoT device or anything, like there's no real quality process they need to run through to demonstrate that their software is secure. And even then, if it's proven that it's insecure, they very often not being held accountable for that. Like we had, mm. we had so many software problems in operating systems from Microsoft and others, but have we ever held Microsoft accountable for those things? To say, mm-hmm. well, you've produced something that caused a big impact here. Like you have to take responsibility for that. And I think we're not there yet in, in, in the world. It's interesting because when we talk about quality control, for example, if I do buy a children's toy, there's a little mark on the back of the package that said that it's certified to some standard. You know, pick up every any power adapter that you use to charge your, you know, your computer or your laptop or tablet or whatever. And there's a whole bunch of standards numbers on the bottom of that that tell you that this conforms to a whole bunch of different safety standards. Do you envision a future where something like that will be part of the software world? Yes, absolutely. I think you start to see the first signals of that in the US, the US government, where they're starting to say, hey, everyone that's supplying software to US government departments you guys will need to go through certain tests and certain rigorous things to prove that your software doesn't have any backdoors, doesn't have any holes in it, doesn't can cause the next colonial pipeline hack, right? So I think that is slowly kind of coming, but I think that's good. Like, 
I think that's going to come everywhere. Like there's two things that I suspect is going to happen is that there is going to be a quality label for secure software or software in the future. And there is going to be standards pushed to developers that when they graduate from university and they want to get into the workplace, that you actually need to demonstrate that you can build software in a safe and secure way. Just like civil engineers, just like nurses and doctors need to care about patient safety, software engineers will will need to be accredited, certified, or demonstrate that they can build things in, in a safe way. And I assume that when you think about that, that's an ongoing process. Just as doctors have to do a certain number of professional development hours every year, we would expect software engineers to do a certain amount of secure code development, each, you know, regularly to prove to actually maintain their qualification. Absolutely, because I think one of the fastest changing things in software world is not the security vulnerabilities. Like the OWASP 10 is static for like 20 years. Hmm. What has changed is that we moved from C to C++, to Java, to Java Spring, to JavaScript, to Node, to Rust, to Go, what, in 20 years? Hmm. So every two, three years, people are changing technologies and libraries. And I think it's like security in all of those languages is different. Hmm. Like... In C and C++, you have buffer overflows. You don't see that anymore today in modern languages, but they have different problems. So it's how does a developer keep up to date, not only with the principles and the concepts, but how do they keep up to date with moving with a new framework and language and understanding, well, what are the the good and the bad coding patterns in that language that I should know about? I imagine one of the other challenges that you would see in that is that, for example, if you talk about, you talked about children's toys earlier, There are Australian standards around children's toys and there are American standards for children's toys and there are EU standards for children's toys. But those products are tangible and there's a physical presence in each country. And if a product doesn't conform to the Australian standard, then it can't be sold in Australia, for example. Software is a bit different, though, because of its ephemeral nature. You know, if I've got a if I stand up a cloud service in the EU and it's EU safe, how do I know it's Australia safe? And, you know, how do we... Because we're actually now talking about a global standard, effectively. And that's... If I've learned anything about inter, international relations in my life on this planet is that they're really hard and they rarely work in the long term. How, you know, you're talking about software development standards and controls that are universally applied. How do we go that... How, how do you envision that journey happening on a global scale? Yeah, so it will kind of, the question is who's going to drive that framework? And who's going to own it? And who's going to own then changes? Now, you can see that like things like PCI DSS have done that on a vertical sector, right? And I feel that the financial sector is going to come out with things maybe driven by the PCI guys saying, well, this is how you develop software in the financial world. And I think in the government and defense world, you, of course, you already have things like common criteria that are existing process and certifications around things. And I would, would assume that the easy way is to embed some software testing into those things. So I think like it's probably going to come faster on a vertical level rather than on a, on a country level. Is That's what I think. Yeah, and that's interesting because verticals tend to have, you know, the, there's a, a former prime minister of Australia once said, in the race of life, always back self-interest because at least you know it's trying. That's the thing we're talking about with those verticals because the banks know, for example, that if they are safe and secure and follow standards like PCI DSS, then their customers will have trust in them and then it's good for the industry and it's good for their businesses. 
Is that the, you imagine the same sort of thing happening across different verticals and eventually manufacturers, for example, might say, look, if you're going to be a certified manufacturer that's, you know, within the Australian standard or within a global standard, you must conform with this particular set of software rules. Is that what you kind of see to happen? That, that's what I, I feel is starting to happen because if you look five years ago, who were the buyers of software security tools and software security training? It was the classic finance, banking and telco. Today, we see people, companies like IKEA or Adidas or Nike, like that are building consumer goods, right? That they are starting to realize, well, if we're going to release wearables, right? T-shirts with, with technology in, we better make sure that thing is secure and that nobody can, can, can mess around with that, right? Because now we're talking about a T-shirt or a shoe that's weared by a human, mm. right? So I think it's definitely going to be driven by, I think, verticals that are going to put out certain certain agreements or alliances that said, well, mm. like in, in an IoT world, this is what you need to do to, to have secure software or in a banking world, this is what needs to be done. Well, that's been a fascinating discussion, Peter. Thank you so much for that. Now, we've been asking all of our guests this year on the OSCERT podcast the same question, and that is to name their cybersecurity superheroes or mentors and leaders and other people that have been especially important to them in their career. Are there any people that you'd like to give a shout out to? This was absolutely one of the more difficult questions. I like. I had a few names. Like I have a few superheroes, and there's the obvious ones. Like I think people like H.D. Moore. When I grew up, like the, the, what he's done for the community in building Metasploit, like that. That's opened my world and my eyes on these things. What is possible, right? But that's an easy choice because everybody knows that. But back in the early 2000s, people that have really influenced my knowledge, my career, and kind of trained me, right, is like there's Jess Garcia in, in Europe, and he's a forensics guy that, that started to do forensics in 2000 when nobody cared about that, right? And he taught me everything about forensics and response and, and, and IDSs and analysis. And I think Arrigo Triulso, which is an Italian person, same thing. And he taught me about how to hack, how to break into systems. And those people might not be the AG Moors and not have the famous background of the AG Moors, but they've been more than important, I think, in my career for giving me the, the knowledge and opening up my view on, on, on what cybersecurity basically has become today. That's amazing. Thank you. And it's great to be able to call out people that aren't often in the spotlight, but you know deserve to be recognized for their contributions to our industry. So thanks very much for your time today, Peter. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. And now it's over to Beck, David and Mike. Thanks, Anthony. Really excited to be back for the month of March, which is a special one for us, sir. And today I'm joined again by David Stockdale and Mike Home. Thanks for joining me, guys. Hi, Beck. Thanks for having us. Yeah, hi, Beck. It's great. It's great to be back. I can't believe we're in March already. I feel like this year is running away from us. It was like, wasn't it last week when we sat down and thought what we're going to do in 2023? <laughs> We did. We, we seem to spend a lot of time sort of preparing and then all of a sudden it's happening and here it is. <laughs> well, the good, I think the good thing about that was that when we sat down and we were talking about what we we're going to do, there some of these things are actually happening. Though It's real. It's real. Mm, already. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely the conference. <laughs> <laughs> so why I've got you today and I thought something we can share with our listeners is, yeah, March is our birthday month and and it's not just a normal birthday for us, it's 30 years of OSCERT, which is just a really amazing thing to reflect on. There's not many organisations in our industry that can say the same. 30 years. It's almost like, you know, we've gone through our troubled teens and our tumultuous 20s and now we're in our 30s, we've matured. 
and we've got responsibilities and uh, i think we're oh. living up to those I think we're living. I think we're living up to those responsibilities. We talked about just briefly, just mentioned about the things that we're planning for this year, but they're really happening. And you're right, the conference is is a big thing, and we have a responsibility. But I, I think you know we were all there at our, at our event that we held for the 30th birthday, and we've got lots of things to talk about. But one of the things I reflected on is in my particular role, I I, I sort of have this this it's a bit like a headmaster of a school is how I described it. It's it's not. You know, so it's not mine, it's not yours. Nick and I are the friends. naughty children. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're the star perform you're star pupils. You perform. Don't they say well. the vice principal runs the school? <laughs> <laughs> but but it is it's you you have tenure of something for a little while and and you and, and that's what it feels like. And it feels like a real privilege to be to be part of OzCert and to and to have a, a, a play a small part in it and to work with such a great group of people. And I think they can move on from that because the great group of people has been there. There's been people over the 30 years, a massive amount of people who have been great people. And I think, you know, whether we want to talk about that as well. Well, I think that's one of my favourite pieces, did you know, is having, you know, all the people that we've worked with over the years. Obviously, you know, the three of us have seen a few people join our team and a few people have gone on to find other parts in their career. But I don't think OSERT leaves anyone. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It was amazing going to that birthday event last week and seeing so many people that that are, in fact, I think there were more OSSET alumni staff than there were actual current staff at OSSET at the moment. We've got 20-something people working in the team now, and I'm, I'm sure there were more alumni there <laughs> than 20. So that, that was amazing for me because there were a couple of people there that working in OSCERT way back when I was in another past life, I was using the services that OSCERT provided at the company that I was working at at the time. And I always looked up to these people because they were either either writing code for systems that were pioneering the way because there was really nothing else available at the time. Or there were analysts that were, you know, doing malware analysis at a time when that was very, very rare. And it, it was very amazing to see some of those people that I hadn't seen for a number of years. I don't know about I you, think... but I, I kept seeing conversations happening from afar where I think, hang on, there's the, you know, the current dev talking to a dev from 20 years ago, you know, really comparing the notes about their roles, about what they were doing. And yeah, that was fascinating. Mm. And, and seeing those was. devs talk about with excitement about, you know, talking to people who'd created things that are still used to some extent and, you know, have, test, have stood the test of time and talking to those, you know, the, the old devs who were around, who, who, who did pioneer the way. But for me, there's something magical about it. And, and I've thought about magic really translates into energy here. Mm. And even when we've got a bad day or a bad week or whatever, that energy that comes through from that magic is something that keeps on driving us. It, even when we think we've, we've lost hope at the moment, at that moment in time for what <laughs> might have happened. We That's still the nature of cybersecurity, isn't it? <laughs> I think it is. I think it is. But you can you could see it was it was, it that was tangible. Yeah. It was it was it was at, the, at that event. So, yeah, great. Yeah. We've changed a lot, though. 30 years. You know, amount. It was back in the 90s, it was, you know, all about incident response. And we, we had someone there at the event last week that was one of the original founding members. I think we had several founding members now that I think of it, but one in particular was was saying, you know, they, they used to 
wiretap modems and actually look at keystrokes being executed by perpetrators of cybercrime way back then in the early 90s. And that's fascinating. We've changed a lot since then. You know, the, the huge focus that we've had recently, particularly on education, training and education. I mean, we are a university. We're part of University of Queensland. And I've always found you know, universities are the, the fountain of, of knowledge and all, all things modern and, and, and uh, information. But to have that actually tapped through OSIRT, so we're actually now providing those courses and we're bringing a whole lot of new ones on this year, we can provide those courses to people that wouldn't normally be able to access academia or, or some of those things in, in their job roles. And because we're not for profit, so we can do it at a really cheap rate. I love how we've sort of really expanded that aspect of our business lately. I think it speaks volumes of the fact that we not, you know, that we've not stood still because the world's changing around us, not only from the point of view of the threats that we face, but other organisations who are coming into the into this arena, who who have quite often a lot of money to invest in it. Yeah. But you know that that we've been agile and we've been able to move with the times and and do the things that were right and fill sometimes fill the gaps where those big companies come in and and won't fill the gaps. And hmm. um, we're still doing that. So uh, yeah, it's it's such an exciting place to be. Also, it really is. All right. Well, I think that's probably enough from us. We're all feeling a bit proud. We're all full of cakes from last week. And obviously our next push is looking forward to May, which is now less than eight weeks to conference. Mm. So, yeah, programs on the website. I hope everyone's checking it out and, and talking to the managers for approval to attend. All of our members have received member tokens, so make sure you're hustling in the teams for those free registrations and making use of those. Yeah, and hopefully we can keep the birthday celebrations happening there. Sounds yep. good. See you at the conference. Indeed. See you all there. Thanks, Joyce. And I, I want to say a special thank you to Anthony, who actually flew from Melbourne to join us at our birthday event last year, last oh, week. Yes. Last he year. wins the prize for the most distance travelled. So that I really, we do actually have some friends of ours, certain members that drove a long way too, but it was really appreciated to know that people really care about us and wanted to be part of that celebration too. That was really special. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Share Today, Save Tomorrow, the OzCert podcast. Thanks to Peter and to Beck, David and Mike. We'll be back next month with another episode of Share Today, Save Tomorrow with new guests and a look into the Australian cybersecurity scene. If you want to know more about OzCert, be sure to visit ozcert.org.au.